Please grab a Bible. We've got some over here, some black Bibles. Uh, And we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And uh, you'll see how much we're going to cover today. But Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through the end of Acts chapter 7, which is uh, chapter 7, verse 60. And and this sizable chunk of Scripture, uh, and I did this to myself because I'm the one that figures out what what passages are going to be covered by the sermon. So I have no one to blame but myself for this massive chunk of scripture, but it's really great. It's cohesive in that it tells the story of Stephen, and uh, Stephen was somebody who boldly stood for Christ, even as he faced Christ-like persecution and eventually execution, becoming the first known martyr of the young church. And the story of Stephen is, is, is one way that God answered the prayers of the church for bold witness, and we saw that going back to Acts chapter 4, and I think I've got it on a slide, but Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 31, we're seeing this ramp up of intimidation and imprisonment leading to further imprisonment and beatings, and now we're going to get to killings. And so we're seeing this increased persecution of the church in this threefold set of narratives in the beginning of Acts. And so what we see after the last round, is that the Christians, the disciples, were praying not that they would never be persecuted, not that they would be easy breezy, or easy peasy as the kids say these days, uh, but, but they didn't pray away all the hard stuff, but they prayed for boldness, a bold witness in the midst of the hard stuff. And that's what we're going to see today. As the external threats of persecution continued to grow, so too did the boldness of Christian witnesses, just like Stephen. And he becomes symbolic of that growth in bold Christian witness. And you know, this reminds me of something uh, that we said at my aunt's funeral service the other day. Some of y'all know this. We were up in Dallas for my, uh, my she's technically my grand aunt, uh, and she was grand indeed. But we, we did a couple different services for her. One of the services we did was a uh, a requiem mass at the Episcopal Church uh, that we actually went to when we were just little, little kids up in Cleburne outside of Fort Worth. And so we did this, um, we were at this Episcopal Church, and at one point in the liturgy for this, for this uh, service, we said this together. We said, And now, as our Savior Christ hath taught us, we are bold to say, And then we said together the words of the Lord's Prayer as found in the Gospel of Matthew. That's part of that Anglican liturgy that we repeated. And you know what? I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and I've been saying those words ever since I was just a little kid, but I never really stopped to consider their significance. What does it mean to say something boldly with respect to our faith in Christ? Now, what it certainly doesn't mean in a biblical sense, it doesn't mean that we are audacious in and of ourselves, that we are brazen and daring just as part of our personality. We just, we're the kind of people that just run into danger. Like, that's not what it's talking about. Rather, it's referring to our confidence in God. It's not our confidence in ourselves or just blindly running into trouble. It boldness comes from our confidence in God. And when we focus on ourselves, and everybody in this room knows this to be true, when we focus on ourselves, we tend to be timid about our faith. Or we try to look brazen and daring. Even if we feel insecure in our faith, we try to look brazen and daring to compensate for that unsettled 
insecure belief in God or understanding of God. But if we would only look to God Himself, we would become bold in that biblical sense as we see in Stephen's life. Folks, the the big idea for today is that boldness comes from better understanding God, better understanding His power, His purposes, and His promises. And in our passage today, Stephen clearly understood God in these ways that I just mentioned. And that's why we see him speaking boldly about God, even and especially in the face of persecution. So let's look at those three aspects of knowing and understanding God. First of all, boldness comes from understanding the power of God. Stephen understood God's power. Going back to... um, And I love that Elias went back and read the first seven verses of of Acts chapter 6 because it talks about how Stephen was chosen as one of those uh, deacons or servants of the church, right? And what were the qualifications? It was that he was one of those seven who would serve the widows, and we see it said twice that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom, and that his life as we see in today's passage, was further marked not just by serving tables and handling the logistics of the food distribution, but his life was further marked by miracles, supernatural miracles that were happening through him and his ministry. So look at uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 8, 9, and 10 with me. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power. Again, we've already seen that he's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. But now it's Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freed men, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So in verse 8, we see that Stephen was full of grace and power and that he was performing great wonders and signs among the people, just like the apostles were doing, just like Jesus had done before them. And then some of his felt, remember, Stephen has a Greek name, a Hellenistic name. So some of his fellow Hellenistic Jews, the synagogue of the freedmen, probably uh, they had been uh, slaves at some point and then freed. And they had come back from these various places around the Mediterranean world to Jerusalem. And so these are Hellenistic Jews. And Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. And so some of his fellow Hellenistic Jews rise up and they argued with Stephen. And they were trying to outwit him, outmatch him theologically and biblically with the Hebrew scriptures, right? But it says that they were unable to outmatch his wisdom and his spirit-empowered speech. Now, a little side note. (laughs) One of the places that are mentioned is Cilicia on the northeastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That is where Tarsus is, and that is where Saul is from. So we're going to see him show up here in a little bit, but I just wonder if Saul wasn't one of the ones arguing with him, trying to theologically debate Stephen, and could not outmatch his wisdom and his spirit-empowered speech. That's an interesting little aside. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But as we see with Stephen, boldness comes from understanding the power of God, and and knowing that the power of God is at work in and through your life as well. Uh, And that's through the Holy Spirit. That's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, is that God's power through the Holy Spirit is at work in and through us. And that's true of every follower of Christ. 
Uh, Second, boldness also comes from understanding the purposes of God. Do we understand the purposes of God? If we do, we will be bold in our faith. And really, like the meat of the... If you look at today's passage as a sandwich, the meat... Uh, It's like the Arby's meat. It's like we got the meats. There's a lot of meat on this sandwich. And this middle section is, um, is, 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 which we'll see, it's Stephen's speech. But it proves in this speech that Stephen understood God's purposes. Why? How? How did he know? Did God just show up to a vision and share his purposes? No. He understood God's word. And God's word in this day was the Hebrew scriptures. It was the Hebrew Bible. He understood the law and the prophets and the writings. And that's how he understood God's purposes as, an, as a direct result of understanding his word. And we're going to see that kind of in the meat of today's passage. And basically, if you want to think of it like a sandwich, you got a piece of bread, you got a whole lot of meat, maybe some horsey sauce in there, and then you got another piece of bread. But the three main sections in this, in this part of the, our passage today that detail how Stephen understands and applies the scriptures are that number one, Stephen is falsely accused. Remember, they can't. They can't match wits with them, so what do they do? They send false witnesses to falsely accuse them of some things. We're going to talk about that. That's relatively short. It's it's chapter 6, verses 11 through 15. But then, and this this is the meaty part, Stephen's defense from Scripture. So what happens when he gets falsely accused? He goes to God's Word and he defends his views right out of Scripture to show that he understands what the purposes of God are based on Scripture. And that's Really, most of chapter 7, it's, it's verses 1 through 50. We're going to summarize that in a second. Uh, and then 3, let's get the other uh, piece of bread on here. That it, it flips. So Stephen, Stephen is accused falsely, and then he gives his defense, and then he turns the tables, and he truly accuses his accusers. And we're going to see that in the, at the end of, uh, towards the end of chapter 7 in 51, 52, and 53. So... I know this is a lot, but I just want you to kind of conceptually hold on to it. So let's talk about the first piece of bread on the sandwich, okay? Stephen is falsely accused. They can't match wits with him. They can't handle his spirit-empowered wisdom and speech. So they falsely accuse him. And these accusations were false. But listen, we're going to read them. They revealed how his accusers misunderstood God's purposes as revealed in the Old Testament. So this is the irony is he gets it. But his accusers totally miss what God is doing, what his purposes are as revealed in Scripture. Uh, And so let's look at verses 11 through 15. I'm going to reread those. It says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him, that is Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. That's the Sanhedrin council. That's that's the rulers there in Jerusalem. It says they put forward false witnesses who said this man does not stop speaking against this holy place. Remember, they're at the temple. This holy place is the temple in Jerusalem. They say he doesn't stop speaking against this holy place and speaking against the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, this this guy from Nazareth named Jesus, will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. And then it says this, I love this aside, it says, And all who were sitting in the council stared at Stephen, and they saw his face, which was like the face of an angel. And again, we see like, 
it's like he's standing in God's presence and, and some of God's glory is, is reflecting off him in some sense, even as he stands there being falsely accused. So basically, Stephen is falsely accused of what? Of speaking insults against Moses, the great lawgiver Moses, uh, and then of God as well. And specifically, they, they're saying that he claimed that Jesus would destroy the temple and negate the law. That he would come in and just destroy this holy place, the temple, and he would just basically destroy the law as well, just negate it. Say, you don't have to pay any attention to that anymore. So these accusations, they reveal that Stephen's accusers, they didn't understand what Stephen was explaining about the law of Moses and what he was explaining about the temple in Jerusalem. That these ultimately pointed forward to the coming Christ and that they had now been fulfilled in Christ through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and his high priestly ministry in the heavenly tabernacle, seated at the right hand of God the Father. They didn't understand what he was explaining about the fulfillment of these things. And so Stephen responds with this great defense directly from the Hebrew Scriptures. And his speech, by the way, is by far the longest speech in the book of Acts, and we're not going to be able to read all 50 verses of it, Um, But we can walk through just a basic five-point outline. So I'm going to do that for you, and I hope you can follow along. I know there's a lot of kind of bullet points in today's passage, but it's it's a big passage, and I think it's going to do us well to to kind of swallow this pill pill altogether. Um, So here's the five things we're going to cover in his speech as he defends himself from Scripture. We're going to look at how he unpacks God's unconditional promise to Abraham. That's in uh, verses 2 through 8 of chapter 7. We're going to look at God's deliverance through Joseph, his deliverance of of Israel through Joseph, who was then rejected by his brothers or who was rejected by his brothers, ultimately leading to deliverance. That's in 9 through 16. We're going to look at God's deliverance of Israel again, this time through Moses, who was also rejected by his kinsmen. That's in uh, verses 17 to 37. And then associated with Moses because it talks about the law is this section in 38 through 43, which is basically Stephen pointing out that Israel had rejected both Moses and the law, even in the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then finally, he's going to swing back around to that other accusation with the temple, and he's going to explain from the Hebrew Scriptures what the reality of the tabernacle, and later when it became a building, the temple, what the reality of these things are, okay? So again, a lot But even if you can glean some of this, this is good stuff, folks. So, as Jesus taught, and this is important to understand, Stephen wasn't just some, uh, you know, incredible guy who just, you know, figured all this stuff out by himself. Jesus taught that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, one of the evidences of empowerment by the Spirit, is that we would better understand God's Word, that He would reveal God's truth to us. And He does that. And this section that we're looking at reveals that the Holy Spirit was certainly at work in Stephen's life to that effect. He was revealing the truth of the Hebrew Scriptures to Stephen and these other disciples. So let's look at some of the things that Stephen understood as we walk through this summary of this passage. In verses 2 through 8, if you've got a Bible, you can just look at them with me. But in chapter 7, 2 through 8, Stephen understood that God had given Abraham an unconditional promise and... Further, he had given him circumcision as the sign of that covenant, as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision. 
He also, Stephen also understood that God had predicted, you know, before it ever happened, God had predicted that Israel would be enslaved in Egypt and God had promised that he would bring them out, that he would birth the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, through the Exodus so that they could then inherit the promises made to Abraham. He didn't give up on the promise to Abraham. He said, this is going to happen, yeah, but I'm going to bring you out of Egypt into the land so that you can experience these promises I made to Abraham, okay? All right, so Stephen understood all that. So God's uh, faithfulness is on the line here, you know, because he's made an unconditional promise to Abraham. Now, let's look at some other things that God does in the history of Israel as, as Stephen walks us through. In verses 9 through 16, Stephen understood that God had delivered Israel out of hunger and death through Joseph. You remember the story? There was a famine in the, in the promised land. And, and where did they go for food? They went down to Egypt. And God rescues, he delivers Israel out of slavery and death through, uh, I'm sorry, uh, hunger and death through Joseph, who had been previously unjustly sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. This is, it's like Stephen is showing us that this story about Joseph, he says, I'm going to rule and you guys are going to bow down to me. His brothers are jealous, so they, they kill him symbolically. They tell his dad he's dead. They sell him into slavery. He goes down into a dungeon, false accusations, eventually comes out of the dungeon and is, is seated at the right hand of Pharaoh and is in charge of the whole kingdom, the whole empire of, of, of Egypt. And by the way, God has him store food knowing that his people, Israel, would need food in the famine and would go down to Egypt to get it. So can you see how this is pointing forward to Christ? Right. So he's talking about Joseph in the sense that he's, he's a deliverer out of hunger and death, but he was unjustly treated by his brethren, his kinsmen. So now let's look at what he says in verses 17 to 37. Stephen understood that God had delivered Israel also out of slavery and death, through Moses, who had also been previously rejected as ruler and deliverer by his kinsmen. You remember the story. He's raised in the house of Pharaoh, and he goes and he strikes down the Egyptian who's beating up one of his, one of his kinsmen. And then he thinks, like, I, God, you know, I'm the deliverer. I'm going to deliver my people, right? But what happens when he, he sees his own kinsmen hurting each other unjustly? He says, what are you doing? And they say, who made you judge and ruler over us? And they rejected him. He fled to Midian and shepherded sheep for 40 years. But then God brought him back to eventually become the great deliverer of Israel out of slavery and death in Egypt. Okay? And Stephen also understood that God had promised another prophet like Moses who would be the great deliverer of God's people. In fact, it's almost like Stephen is... It's almost like Stephen's speech gets cut short by him being stoned to death, which we're going to look at in a second. But it's almost like he's building this case using these Hebrew scripture uh, uh, foreshadowings of the Christ. And he gets to the point where he goes back to the Hebrew scriptures themselves, what Moses himself said. There's going to be another deliverer. It's not just about me. There's going to be another deliverer, a prophet like me, and you must heed what he says or else you're going to be cut off from the people, from God's people. And so he's almost like he's building this case that it's pointing forward to Christ. All right. Then in verses 38 to 43, remember what Stephen was accused of? He's, he's uh, uh, denigrating the law and the temple. Remember this? So he circles back to the law. He says, you want to talk about the law? You want to talk about rejecting Moses and speaking insults against Moses? 
And so Stephen understood that Israel had, in fact, rejected Moses. Not just in that initial rejection when Moses went back to Midian for 40 years, but even after he had brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the ten plagues, he goes up to receive the law from God, and what do they do? I don't know what happened to that guy. Hey, Aaron, can you melt down some golden earrings and make us a calf that we can worship? Right? They had rejected, even as Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law, they're down at the base of the mountain breaking it. And so he's saying, guys, you see what's happening here even back then? He's telling this to the, that generation that he was in. And then in, finally in this section, in 44 through 50, Stephen also understood that the tabernacle was a tent of testimony, that that tent that they, that they carried around with them for 40 years in the wilderness and then brought into the promised land, and eventually they made a building that represented it called the temple, okay? He knew that it was, it was simply a tent of testimony to travel around with Israel as a symbol of God's presence among his people and a symbol of God's faithfulness to accomplish his promise of salvation and restoration. It was to remind them that God has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten about you. And this holy God can indeed dwell amongst his unholy people. And it was through the sacrificial system centered on the temple, the tabernacle. Okay, so Stephen gets this, that it's a testimony. It's a tent of testimony. But Stephen also understood, going back to the actual Hebrew scripture himself, or itself, Stephen understood that that earthly tabernacle was only ever a copy of the heavenly tabernacle where God resides in the heavenlies. Stephen goes right back to the Old Testament to say, guys, this is just a copy. This is just an earthly symbol that is revealing to us what it is like in heaven, what it is like in the presence of God. And that no earthly structure could ever hold the presence and the glory of God. So it's not, he's not trying to blaspheme God. He's trying to say, guys, you're putting too much emphasis on this building. You're putting too much emphasis on the temple when it's really just a, a tent of testimony, so to speak. But to wrap all this section up, I just say this. Guys, Stephen was a Christian. He was a Hellenistic Jewish man, yes, but he was a Christian. He understood that God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled through Christ. He understood that Jesus was the one who would be rejected by his kinsmen, just like Joseph and Moses, and who would similarly become our great deliverer, not rescuing us out of physical hunger and physical slavery and physical death, but rescuing both Jew and Gentile from slavery to sin and death. Stephen also understood that the meaning of circumcision, that act of circumcision, and the requirements of the law of Moses, and the significance of that earthly temple were all ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And we spent months talking about that in the letter to the Hebrews. Okay? He understood that. And some Jews in Jerusalem, they understood the Hebrew Scriptures in light of Christ. And they agreed with Stephen. That's who made up the church. Were these Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews that looked back at the Hebrew Scriptures and said, yes, this is right. But others misunderstood the meaning of God's Word. And so they rejected Stephen 
and his understanding of God's purposes. But that didn't stop Stephen from trying to help all of his fellow Jews understand the true meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures and believe in Jesus as their Messiah, as their Christ, as their Anointed One, as the fulfillment of all of God's precious promises to Israel. So Stephen accuses his accusers and pronounces judgment on them. Having laid out his defense from Scripture, he now flips the tables and says, you who falsely accuse me and who misunderstand God's purposes, I now accuse you of misleading the people and misrepresenting God's word. And he speaks a word of judgment on them. But before you think he's just some grumpy you know, guy pronouncing judgment, it's clear from the context that Stephen had a loving motive, just like Jesus did, for rebuking these men. And, and ultimately, he had a desire to see them and everyone else in Israel uh, uh, turn from their sin, repent, right? To turn from their sin and believe in Jesus as their Messiah for forgiveness and for eternal life. That was his motive. Guys, look at verses 51, 52, and 53 with me. It said, he says this to these, these leaders, the Sanhedrin. Sounds very Christ-like. These are the same ones that crucified Christ, by the way. But he says, you men who are stiff-necked, that's like stubborn, like unbending, unyielding. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And you have now become betrayers and murderers of him. That is the righteous one. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So folks, Stephen understood that the Hebrew prophets, they didn't get taken out by foreign enemies, right? Who persecuted and killed the Hebrew prophets? The Hebrew people. The Hebrew prophets were persecuted and killed by their own people for speaking the truth about God's purposes. And he pointed out, Stephen points out, that his own persecutors that day had already killed the, the righteous one, that's Jesus, who had been predicted by those Hebrew prophets. Stephen was diagnosing a sin condition that had existed in Israel for a long time that included a humility problem. That's that stiff-neckedness. I think I just made up a term there. Uh, so it was a humility problem. It was a heart problem, an uncircumcision of the heart. And it was a hearing problem. They stuffed up their ears to, to, uh, to become insensitive to the Holy Spirit and what he was trying to reveal to them in Scripture. So Stephen boldly pointed out this sin so that many more Israelites would realize that the incredible promises of the Hebrew Scriptures, the incredible promises of the Hebrew prophets, were in fact being fulfilled in Christ. And that leads us to our last point today that boldness comes from understanding the promises of God. So let's look at our last seven verses, 54 to 60. It says, Now when they heard this, can you imagine how angry 
When they heard this, they were infuriated, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one mind. They were single-minded in what they wanted to do in that moment, in that emotional uproar. Verse 58, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus had said when he was hanging on the cross. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That's a euphemism for he died. So Stephen understood the promise of God's presence with his people. Did God promise to be with his people? Yes. We see in this passage, he even sees a vision of the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God's glory. Folks, before Jesus went up to be at the right hand of God's glory, what did he promise his disciples? I will never leave you. I will be with you even until the end of the age. And folks... He was with Stephen to the very bitter end. But Jesus, and hear me on this one, Jesus had never promised his disciples freedom from persecution and death. In fact, he told his disciples that we would face trials and tribulations as a result, as a direct result of our faith in Jesus Christ. And that some of us would even die for Christ just as he died for us. And that still happens all over the world today. Someone today will die for their faith in Jesus Christ somewhere in the world. He never promised us freedom from persecution and death. But even so, Jesus had promised that he would take his disciples to be with him. At the end of their ministry, at the end of their life of discipleship, of of taking up their cross and following Jesus, he would take them to be with himself. And this was made possible how? How would he be able to take us with him to be in the presence of God's holiness and God's glory? Through his sacrificial work on the cross, through his own suffering and death on the cross and his resurrection. And through his death and resurrection... Through him paying the penalty for our sins, that sacrificial work on the cross, we are now holy and righteous and able to enter into God's presence in heaven. So Stephen, knowing this, Stephen calls out to his Lord Jesus to receive his spirit to him so that he could be with him even after physical death. But there's something else that Stephen understood, and I would be remiss if I left this out. Stephen understood something else about God and his promises. He knew that God was willing to grant forgiveness. He knew that God yearned for those people to recognize their sin, turn from it, and to be saved. He, He was a God who, as He revealed Himself to Moses and to Israel in the Old Testament, He's patient. 
His loving kindness is for unto a thousand generations. Like he over and over again reveals himself as kind and merciful and gracious and willing to forgive. If only we would turn from our sin and turn towards him and turn towards faith in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. And Stephen knew this, folks. And so what does he boldly pray with his last words in this physical life on this earth? He uses his dying breaths to boldly pray that God would not hold his own unjust execution against those persecutors so that many of even them would eventually join him as followers of Jesus Christ. And one of the Pharisees that was leading Stephen's execution that day was a young up-and-coming Pharisee named Saul. And God would answer Stephen's dying prayer by leading, probably others, but specifically by leading that zealous young Pharisee named Saul to faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, as we all know, or maybe some of us know, he would go on to become the Apostle Paul. And he would eventually become God's, one of God's primary instruments for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth and for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. And I just think that's beautiful how that works together. So like Stephen, Paul would be a bold witness for Christ because he would understand God's power, God's purposes as revealed in Scripture. Paul understood God's purposes. He understood Scripture. And he knew God's promises. Um, so I'll just, I would point out that Stephen's boldness, even in the face of death, is inspiring, isn't it? Isn't that inspiring to see someone so bold in their faith? Think about it. It must have left an impression on Saul. I can't beat him with my logic or my theology, but I can put some false witnesses against him and have him taken out through stoning. But certainly what he was revealing about the Hebrew Scriptures, can you imagine that rattling around in the mind of Saul going, well, that sort of makes sense. Huh, I've never looked at it like that before. It's like he gets into his crawl space. And I think that Stephen's boldness should encourage us to become more bold in our faith by better understanding God's purposes and God's promises, and by relying ultimately on the power of the Holy Spirit for boldness. In first century Jerusalem, it didn't get more deeply divisive than Stephen's biblical understanding of the law and the temple. Guys, that was the hot-button issue as the church was beginning. All right, But today, in our modern American context, I think... And, and this is my illustration. I think the right to life is one of the most deeply divisive issues in our culture, in our modern American context. And as many of you know, Friday, just two days ago, was the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. It's the 49th annual. Uh, and today is actually widely celebrated as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in many, many different churches and denominations. And we've celebrated this every year, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. In Scripture, I'm just like Stephen, I want to go back to Scripture for a minute. In Scripture, we understand that God is ultimately the author and the sustainer of life, even life everlasting. And furthermore, from Scripture, we understand that God's purposes to create human life are prior to conception. Just consider his promises concerning the seed of the woman to Adam and Eve. 
Had that seed been born yet? No. Was God's desire, His purpose to create that life already pre-existing, the conception of the seed, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David? These seeds would culminate in the person of Jesus Christ who had certainly not yet been conceived. Just consider uh, those promises, but also consider Jeremiah. This is one of my favorite passages. It talks about God's purposes in regard to human life. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Before, and this is God speaking, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Or God's word concerning Zechariah's as yet unconceived son, John the Baptist. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For he, speaking about this as yet unconceived son, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Or Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, her experience with this as yet unborn John the Baptist. In Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 41 and 44, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, remember now Mary is pregnant with the Christ child, then she comes to visit her cousin. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she says in verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And of course, they're the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139. This is so beautiful. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16 says, For you created my innermost parts, You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am... This The NASB 2020 says awesomely. I like fearfully and wonderfully made. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my formless substance. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So according to Scripture, folks, life doesn't begin at birth. Our life was present in the mind of God from eternity past. And a human life is certainly present at the moment of conception and every moment thereafter. God is the author and sustainer of life. And he calls each of us to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. And of course we know the foreigner, the alien, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, but add to that the unborn human life. And he calls us to stand up for those who would be unjustly treated, to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, to protect themselves. God promises to bless us as we protect such lives. And he promises judgment if we destroy such lives and treat such people unjustly. God's purposes to create and sustain life and to ensure justice for such people, those have become our purposes as followers of Jesus Christ. And God gives us the power through his Holy Spirit to speak and to act with boldness on these issues. As Christians, we must stand on the truth of God's Word and we must speak boldly in proclaiming His truth. But folks, we also must act boldly. And so I just want to 
I want you to consider something that I had not considered until yesterday. Consider what would happen if you've been paying attention to the news, you know this is hot on the news right now, but consider what would happen if Roe were to be reversed this spring in the Dobbs case that's before the Supreme Court. Think about what would happen in the wake of that, if that were to happen, which I pray to God that that happens. But for one thing, can you imagine the dramatic increase in the need for foster and adoptive parents? Can you imagine just overnight how quickly we would need so, so many more foster and adoptive parents in our country? So consider how our confidence in Christ could lead to bold action to complement our bold proclamation, that our actions in boldness could follow our bold words. The source who we support, a Women's Health Resource Center and Pregnancy Resource Center. The source needs volunteers and donations. There, there are pregnant women in Greater Austin, including not a few refugees and asylum seekers who, who don't even know what a baby shower is, but who would be incredibly blessed to have somebody with the resources to do so throw them a baby shower and celebrate this amazing thing that God is doing in and through them. Organizations like the Family Restoration Coalition need men and women to mentor at-risk parents, parents who have either lost their children or are at severe risk of losing their children, to CPS. And our church is also working with Fostering Hope to encourage. I know uh, Alice has been so involved in that, and we're so appreciative of what she's been doing with Julie and the others at Fostering Hope. But, but Fostering Hope helps to encourage and support people as they step into this amazing adventure of fostering or adopting. And we support that. So think about those bold actions that could complement our bold proclamations about what we understand God's Word to say about human life. And I'll just close with one last application. And it's in, it's in response to our tendency, to my tendency. I did it Friday. My tendency to shrink back from sinners as if we're not sinners in need of a Savior as Christians. But I can get on my holy high horse and, and in my self-righteousness, I can shrink back from those depraved people over there, forgetting that I too was in need of a Savior and a recipient of God's grace in forgiving my sins through Christ. But it's in a direct response to that that I want to bring up this last application. When it comes to issues like the right to life, what do we tend to do in the church, in, in some churches? We tend to demonize the people on the other side of the issue, right? I, I, I'm guilty. It's not good, but it's what we tend to do. We tend to demonize the folks on the other end of the issue. So I was reading this great article in the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Commission of the Southern Baptist. Um, the Southern Baptists have the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. They've got a great website, and I was on there the other day looking at the March for Life information, and I stumbled across this article, and it's written by Jordan Wooten, and I'll close with this, and this is how he ends his article. It's a December 8th article entitled, How the Debate on Life Might Be Won Through Friendship. Go figure. He writes this. So, he's speaking to Christians. Whether on the steps of the Supreme Court or the cubicle across the hall, may we, for the love of God and neighbor, have the courage, the boldness, to put down our commenting devices 
and go befriend someone into the kingdom of God. And in the stead of our Savior, may we wear the label friend of sinners with joy. I love that. So let's not forget that Stephen's bold witness in today's passage, how did it end? It ended with a bold request for God to forgive the very people who were unjustly ending his life. And, and you can't get much more Christ-like than that, folks. Um, next week, we are going to have Service Sunday, and we're actually going to get to serve some of uh, these refugees and asylum seekers that I mentioned. We're also going to be able to serve some folks in our own congregation and elsewhere. So I hope you'll sign up for one of the projects. And then in February, uh, Chris, he's out there, he's going to lead us into Acts chapter 8, and uh, we're going to see even more persecution, but, but more persecution leading to even more preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to bring us into that in chapter 8 in two weeks. So let me pray. Please bow your heads. Thanks for sticking with me a little bit longer today.